This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. We've all had them controlling bosses, friends, spouses, and parents. We are talking controlling people with Dr. Karash Edelati, psychiatrist. Also talking about why it's important to treat your ex-wives well. We dive into weight and dementia. And what do club drugs have to do with ED? The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. We've all had them. Controlling bosses, siblings, friends, spouses, parents. Joining me on the line now is Dr. Karash Edelati. He is a psychiatrist and CEO at LUMind Centers for Brain Excellence in Vancouver. Good evening, Dr. Edelati. Good evening, Maureen. These controlling people, they're a mystery to me, um, <laughs> but they're everywhere. And uh, so I, I'm probably going to start out with a, a tough question for you. But um, so I yesterday went to pick my husband up at, at the marina. And as I was driving back, I said, I'd spent a few hours by myself in my home, which never happens anyway. And so I get into trouble. So I said to him on the drive home, I, I'm, I have something to tell you, but I don't want you to respond. This does not warrant a response. <laughs> I don't want you to say anything. And so he didn't say anything. And so then I said, I have moved the uh, table in the family room to the dining room and I've moved this pedestal table that I had been on the hunt for forever into the family room. So I'd switch the tables around. And so he didn't say anything for about 30 seconds. And then he said, what did you do? Drag it from one room to the next? Are the floors all chewed up? (laughs) How did you do that? How did you lift that table? And I didn't say anything. And he said, did you do it by yourself? And I said, no, I had help, (laughs) which made him feel a bit better. Then we walked in and he said, I love it. It looks great. Who's the controlling person there? (laughs) You don't have to. (laughs) I suspect it's me. We have those situations, though, in our lives, right? Well, it's it's in everyone's lives, Maureen, without any question. Um, And I'm not going to answer who's the controlling. (laughs) I know. I know it's him. Let me tell you. But what exactly is a controlling person? Is it a diagnosis? Well, let me just start by looking at why anyone would want to control uh, someone or a situation. I mean, that's oftentimes the million-dollar question. And the simple answer is anxiety and fear. Uh, These are the root causes of uh, any kind of controlling behavior. And some of them are very subtle. You just don't really see it. But uh, you feel it. You feel it in your gut that this, this is actually not feeling so good, right? Uh, so the question would be, ultimately, where, where is this anxiety all coming from? Right? Uh, and oftentimes, uh, when we look at this anxiety, we look at a person's uh, childhood, believe it or not. Uh, many times, uh, we forget about uh, that very, very important part of our lives. And it is uh, actually the part of our lives that has a lot of uh, effect on how we behave uh, not only in uh, uh, child or childhood, but also in adulthood. And that spills over into our work life and our interpersonal relationships and our romantic lives. In, in every situation, I mean, in, it, it shows up in many areas where we don't expect them to show up. And we only notice them after we have been in that uh, relationship, friendship, 
um, work relationship. And the way we notice it is it, uh, how it makes us feel. And how is it that uh, their fear, their anxiety makes them shift to controlling somebody else, somebody else's behavior? Well, let's just go back and see where uh, this anxiety uh, was actually created. Okay. Oftentimes, what you look at is poor attachment. Uh, basically, uh, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of parents, very well-meaning parents, sometimes they don't really mean to um, do this to their kid, but they bring on unconditional uh, love. Basically, uh, a lot of times they look at your marks and say, "I love you," or if you don't have very good marks. Uh, the default uh, would be not so lovely. <laughs> I don't um, love you anymore. You got to be. That's right. That's right. <laughs> or, or, or they um, they nurture you in a very unreliable and sometimes uh, inconsistent way. Um, many people feel uh, kind of a very anxious attachment when they're growing up. They feel like, hey, this love can be taken away from me. And so, uh, fear oftentimes means mistrust. Um, because if if I feel that my parents or the caregivers are not going to be giving me the love that I deserve, uh, how can I trust the rest of the world to do that for me? So this becomes basically a, a, a very uh, anxious attachment. In really bad cases, the feeling of abandonment. So... Uh, then people start to develop the anxiety that there is a lot of uncertainty and I need to deal with this uncertainty with a controlling behavior. Um, After a while, this becomes a habit and they don't even notice that they're doing it. And is it always, does it always stem from childhood or can it stem from a traumatic experience later in life? It, it It can also stem from a traumatic experience. I mean, if somebody is in a bad relationship, uh, they get treated really poorly they develop mistrust, uh, and as a result of that mistrust, they have unsafe perceptions of what the world is after this uh, traumatic experience. And so this can also become an anxiety-provoking situation, and as a result, they start behaving in a controlling way. And uh, I have so many questions, but um, getting back to the childhood, um, is it, you know, I, I've heard people say you need one good parent. Uh, do parents also, there's no instruction manual for being a parent, but do parents have to be healthy of mind to prevent raising controlling adults? Absolutely. We don't come with a, a manual for parenting. Uh, we come with a manual for uh, our computers, but, you know, <laughs> most of the time we don't know how to parent until we kind of try it out. And if if you're really, really good, we read a book. Um, so it's... Uh, it's important to learn how to parent. And before we do that, we need to understand our own anxiety and what drives our own behavior. Right. Now, can you disagree with controlling people? That's a tough one because uh, what happens is if somebody uh, gets uh, to be controlling, uh, the world looks very threatening to them. So let's say you disagree with them, what they perceive this is as a threat. And uh, it's sometimes uh, a threat that they cannot really deal with at a conscious level. So all of that unconscious controlling behavior comes out when you disagree with them. And so why they tend to get angry when you don't follow their advice. So why is you following their advice so important to them? 
because it makes them feel insecure again. Uh, I mean, just think of uh, any threatening situation. Uh, when we feel uh, threatened, our fight-or-flight response mechanisms kick in. And oftentimes, uh, this means that uh, we become angry. Anger is actually an energized anxiety. Mm. I've never heard it described that way, but that actually is a great definition. Anger is energized anxiety. Uh, so do controlling people uh, have personal rules that they expect others to follow? Uh, they do. And, and these, are, these are rules made up so that, again, it makes them feel safe about their own internal anxiety. Uh, and it is a way for them to have um, others acknowledge their anxiety indirectly. And, and do they actually see themselves as controlling people? Oftentimes not. Uh, and the reason for this goes back to where this is coming from. And oftentimes this is coming from their automatic mind, or sometimes we refer to it as the subconscious mind, the emotional mind, or the unconscious mind. So they don't really see it at, um, at a conscious level, unless, unless they have psychopathic or sociopathic tendencies where they want to manipulate people. Right, right. Um, and so I, I'd like you to stay on the line. Uh, we're, we're just hitting up against the break um, because I'd like to talk about how does one deal with controlling people or if somebody happens to, by some miracle, recognize that they are a controlling person, um, how can they actually change that or help themselves uh, in that regard? Dr. Edelotti, if you don't mind staying on the line. Dr. Korosh Edelotti is, is a psychiatrist and the medical director at Elumind Centers for Brain Excellence in Vancouver. Thanks for staying on the line, Dr. Edelotti. My pleasure, Marie. We have Alana from Winnipeg on the line. Good evening, Alana. Good evening. How are you? Fine, thanks. How are you? Excellent. Good. Have you got a question for me? Well, I just wanted to sort of make a statement. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, we used to have hope chests for girls at 16 on their birthday would receive a hope chest. And then they would get prepared for their future life, whether they had a husband or not. They would be able to have their home sustained. Now what we need is a vocational program involved in our schools, which our government is designed, the Western government, is absolutely designed to create independence. So we should be creating this vocational program where it doesn't matter skin color or sex, gender, um, desires, anybody and everybody should be able to walk up to this program and create their food, shelter, and clothing um, hope chest, quote-unquote, so that we don't have to rely on anybody. And then everybody that has perhaps um, more of a susceptibility if they were perhaps um, hospitalized as a child with diphtheria or something so that they were isolated and so they wanted control over anything as they grew up, whether their parents were um, abusive or not abusive. So, yeah, I just think that we need to um, continue to evolve our government. Of course, I'm a big advocate to the North Star is one of the agendas that we keep forgetting as we're voting every four years. That we have to get to the North Star, so we all have to be independent, but yet we have to be able to rely on each other 
at the same time for all those wonderful things that we need, like family and friends and and bosses. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you bring up a great point. And, and Dr. Adelotti, uh, is this is there some way to protect against um, being attracted to somebody who might be a controlling person? So are, are, are some people at greater risk than others, say those that don't have the opportunities? And I fully agree with you, Alana. I think we need to do more and more to have more access and more uh, ha- access to education, healthcare, especially for girls and women. Um, but is there some way that we can uh, provide immunity against against becoming, working for a controlling boss or or getting into a relationship with a control freak? I think uh, the point that Alana brought up was wonderful. She talked about uh, building up self-worth, and it is really the uh, ultimate uh, weapon against being controlled, Uh, understanding that uh, every single person is a worthy human being and being controlled uh, really is not appropriate to the self-force. So if we have programs that uh, that create that self-force and help people understand that no matter what childhood they had or what, what circumstances they grew up under, uh, they're worthy human beings. And uh, once they recognize that, um, they have the world in front of them. Uh, and this will prevent them from being a victim of someone who's controlling. Right. Um, no, it's it's a great point. But for those people who don't have that benefit or, um, you know, don't feel great about themselves for whatever their past experience may have been, is there some way that they can protect themselves against uh, getting involved with somebody like this? And then I don't want to forget to ask you, we don't, we don't have too much time left, um, how can controlling people help themselves? Well, first thing is uh, identifying uh if there is a controlling behavior uh, being experienced, right? This is uh, one of the ways to see it. But uh, to go back even further, being able to deal with um, their own underlying anxieties um, and seeking out uh, mental health uh, professionals uh, to help them build resilience. In schools, uh, uh, they can introduce something called social-emotional learning, which is a way of really... Uh, helping children develop that resilience. Uh, and um, this is uh, something that the governments have to take on um, to create. But on a uh, level where people can kind of protect themselves is understanding when they're uh, entering any kind of work or uh, relationship, any kind of interpersonal interaction, where that uh, controlling behavior is and how it is affecting them. That right. was the first step, is identifying it. Mm-hmm. Many people have to keep jobs, and that's a big worry today. Um, so they, they will put up with things, or they stay in a relationship because of finances. Um, but it all ties back to self-worth, I guess. Yeah, it does. Uh, I mean, it, it's a very, sometimes a very challenging situation. I mean, uh, there's really no easy way out of a controlling situation other than recognizing that um, you can always... Uh, be better in terms of what you're doing in your work or whether uh, you can be in a relationship where you feel uh, loved without any uh, control or condition. Thank you so uh, much, Dr. Edelotti. We've got to, we're up against the clock here. I'll get you back next week. We're going to talk about narcissism. 
joining me on the line. You've heard his voice before on the show. He does incredible work. He's been published in the New York Times. He is Matthew Frey. He's a relationship coach and writer who leans on the lessons of his failed marriage, his words, and divorce to help others avoid making the same mistakes he did. He got divorced because he left dishes by the sink. Frey writes about that and more on his blog, Must Be This Tall to Ride. Good evening, Matthew. How are you doing? Hi, Maureen. I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. That's great. Thanks for coming on again. I appreciate it. And and this subject is really dear to my heart. I see couples in my clinical practice, and I cannot tell you how upsetting it is to see one person usually the one with a bit more power, perhaps, um, treat the other person poorly after the divorce. And I think it is critical in terms of the health of the fractured family, if you will, that we treat people with respect, even if we were married to them and no longer are. I heard a man recently talk about his ex-wife and how she had fallen on some hard times and he brought her back into the family home and his friends were giving him a hard time about bringing her back in. He said, she's the mother of my children. Of course I'm going to. She's having a rough go in life. And so they were shaming him. But I actually thought that's an attractive quality in a guy and he is easily fix (laughs) upable. Quite frankly, and you wrote a great blog about the seven life-changing benefits of treating my ex-wife well after divorce. So why is it important, Matthew? Yeah, that guy's a hero. That's exactly what that situation calls for, and I feel exactly the same. And here's the thing. So, And and I'm going to come at this maybe a little bit differently than an angry and resentful husband. Although, to be fair, it would be disingenuous to not disclose that seven years ago, when I first got divorced, I was angry and resentful. I made it about me. I made it all about how she was quitting on the family and betraying me and abandoning me and, you know, me, 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 me. And then really my blog, all it's ever been for the past seven years, is sort of trying to put the pieces together. I needed to understand like how my marriage had fallen apart because I perceived myself to be a decent guy. I know I married somebody that, you know, had the same interests that I had. And how did it fall apart? There was a true story there and I had to uncover it and I finally did. So it's maybe easier for me who has an enormous amount of regret and remorse and empathy today for my wife and what she went through because of how blind I was to these pains that she was experiencing because of my frequent invalidation and my insistence that the, the way I filtered information and reacted to things were so much more, you know, legitimate than hers. That tended to be how those conversations went. You know, my truth was more true than her truth. Is must have been how she felt, and that's terrible. So I come at this as she deserves post-marriage uh, and always will what she was owed in marriage. But I really think that's kind of true for anybody, no matter what, if you love your children. I mean, the most simple way to think about it from my perspective is, do you love your children? Check yes or no. Yes. Does having healthy parents that are their best selves provide these children the best chance for success? Check yes or no. Yes. Okay. You sabotaging their life and being like an anchor and a problem and a pain point obviously does not help your child's other parent be their best selves. So, I mean, it's like super black and white for me in that way, but it's, it's even more nuanced than that. If I couldn't treat my wife well in, in, in marriage, can I at least show up in divorce so that my son gets behavior modeled for him that can serve him like later in life so that he isn't doomed to repeat, right, the quote unquote sins of my past? 
so that he's not accidentally thinking this is how you treat people. And I want to disclose, of course, you know, that women also can treat their ex-husbands poorly as well and may have the emotional hand up in that, um, being able to manipulate a little bit better. But one thing you talk about in the blog is that uh, one of the benefits of treating your ex-wife well afterward is that you get to know things that you wouldn't have before and maybe freak out a bit less. And so if people are not treating someone well, naturally things aren't going to be shared. They're going to be withheld. And that further fractures the family. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And what I think I meant specifically by that was the idea of one of the things that hurt so much and created so much fear in me when the divorce first happened and my son was four years old. It was, who's going to be in his life? I no longer get to influence what happens to him 50% of the time. And that was terrifying to me. It was so scary to me, this idea that some guy, right? And I was my worst self seven years ago. So the guys in my head were demons who were like, you know, womanizers and child abusers. But Mm -hmm. that she would be interacting with, which is insane, but that's what I was afraid of at the time. When you treat your partner well, your former partner, as it were, trust is earned. And there's a healthy line of communication back and forth so that your partner's not whisking them off on a vacation 2,000 miles away for seven to 10 days and you have no earthly idea what they're doing or who they're with. My ex-wife and I have always uh, made sure that our son talked to the other parent when we were out of town on vacation. You know, like every day there's like a FaceTime conversation, always sending pictures and videos to one another. And that's the preferred method in my estimation. And that's also really selfish. How about we just treat people well for the sake of treating them well? Exactly. You talk about healing much faster when you get to be you again and actually treat your ex-wife with dignity and respect. And and many people hold on to those resentments in the marriage, especially after the divorce, and cannot get over that. That's one of the reasons that they treat people so poorly, as opposed to, as you did, center it around your child. Yeah, and I try to find a generous story there. Uh, Again, I don't talk to a lot of people post-divorce, but I talk to a lot of people on the brink. I understand in a way that I didn't seven, eight, nine, ten years ago why wives and mothers are so angry after just years of not being heard, of being invalidated. Uh, I, I don't have to explain to you, certainly. They're angry and they feel righteously sort of like indignant about all this, and I get it. So when I'm talking to a wife that's not yet divorced, she's trying to just break through to her husband who she's furious with. I am always trying to disassociate a lot of these things that kill marriage, disassociate them from character. I really don't believe we are bad people intentionally hurting one another. I think we are well-intentioned people hurting each other accidentally in our blind spot. And I think there is a generous version of these stories that makes sense. And that if we can all like embrace this idea that from the other human's perspective, what they thought and felt at the time they thought and felt it is maybe not such an insane idea. If we choose curiosity, we can get to a place where we don't feel so angry. And that's how I had to get there in order to treat my wife well post-divorce was I had to understand her version of the story. And as soon as I did, it occurred to me, I deserved everything I had coming. She did the right thing by removing herself from a perpetually unhealthy situation. And uh, there's a lot of peace 
and a lot of personal development that happens when you come to some of those realizations. Sounds like those are some of the greatest gifts. And, you know, I just want to say hurt people hurt people. And so it's always helpful to process the pain. And when we do that through crying, talking, whatever, we release some of that pain. Matthew, awesome as usual. Thank you so much. Uh, What's the best way for people to read some of your phenomenal work? Uh, My blog is musttobethistalltoride.com. And you can also find me every Thursday at the Good Men Project. Fantastic. And of course, that infamous New York Times article as well about uh, the great work you do coaching dads to prevent divorce. So important for the family. Matthew, thanks again for joining me and we'll definitely get you back because I think you've got a lot to say and I like what you have to say. Thank you so much, Maureen. Um, So joining me on the line once again to discuss this is a clinical professor at the University of British Columbia, a medical doctor dealing every day on the front lines of COVID-19. He is the one and only Dr. Gurdeep Parhar. Good evening, Dr. Parhar. Good evening, morning. How are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Are you there? Yeah, I'm still here. Oh, there you are. There you are. (laughs) Trying to control this, are you? Um, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I feel naked without a mask. And uh, even here in studio when Brendan and I are separated by a wall and and glass. Um, But looks like Calgary is uh, lots of people there are going to be saying that. Oh, Brendan's got his mask on. Nice one. Yeah, yeah. Did you put away the bag of chips? Did I put away my bag of chips? You worried me. Yeah, exactly. Um, but Calgary looks like they're going to be um, people are going to be considered naked if they don't have their masks on. What's going on in Calgary? So there's a lot of discussion, memory across the country right now, about whether they should be mandatory mask wearing indoors. We know that indoors is where the risk is, and people are wondering whether even the two-meter distancing indoors is enough. But in, in Alberta, not just in Calgary, but also in Edmonton, they've passed bylaws now at the municipal level where they said that masks are mandatory um, in indoor spaces where there's access to the public. So if you're sitting in your own office and there's a door to that office, not a cubicle, but a door, then you're fine. But if it's any other public space where um, there could be members of the public coming in, then it's mandatory that you wear masks in both um, uh, um, Edmonton and in Calgary. And there's actually fines. I mean, the the goal is to really be educating the public and and let them know that they're serious about it, um, that the municipal officers are serious about it. But um, there are fines, um, $50, I think, in Calgary and about $100 in in Edmonton. Um, What they're saying, though, is that if you have to receive a service, so, for example, if you have to eat or drink in a restaurant, obviously you can slide the mask aside, um, or even though you have to wear the mask in a place of worship, like a, a temple, a synagogue, a mosque, a church, um, if you're to receive communion or something else that requires you to remove your mask, you can remove your mask. Um, but but in general, um, this is, and, and, and the other big area, Maureen, has been, we've been talking about public transit and taxis and Ubers and so forth, and, and, the, rec- and the recommendation or requirement now, I guess, with the bylaw is to be wearing the mask you know, on, on the, the, the public transit such as the sea train in calgary wow um you know the the restaurants now it's apparently 19 times more contagious if you uh eat indoors than if you eat on a patio 
uh, this virus. Yeah, and and that's why I think we're seeing a lot of um, patios being extended in restaurants for people um, choosing to take the food and eat out on a bench or somewhere else. Um, But it is that sitting space and some of the sitting indoor space. And and some of the initial studies that came from Asia were that people got it who were even more than two meters apart, um, but it was long durations of time. It wasn't just the physical distance, but it was when you were sitting indoors for longer periods of time, which is what we tend to do when we're in restaurants. We're not just in and out in 10 or 15 minutes usually. Right. One drink after another. Um, you know, the thing is, is New York City, uh, you know, and I might get a bit of flack about this because I, I understand the impact on the economy and I completely understand the people out of work and restaurants um, and I am doing takeout, trying to do my part, but I will not sit indoors in a restaurant. Um, but New York City closed their the indoors, uh, the indoor restaurants. It's only outdoors. Um, but we haven't done that in places, I'm not sure about Calgary, but I know Vancouver has indoor dining and Whistler has indoor dining and I think Edmonton has indoor dining. So um, with such a high contagious rate um, and, you know, and, and it's a tough one because people are losing out on their livelihood. Um, Absolutely. And, 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 you know, how long can you keep people away from socializing? So I, I think sort of a prudent approach and, and the restaurants are asked to run at less than capacity so people can be more spaced out. But Marine, the other part that we haven't often talked about are the, and you mentioned it when you said livelihood, are the people that work in the hospitality industry. So I have a lot of patients that are waiters and waitresses and bartenders. And even though they're putting in the same hours, because a significant amount of their income comes from tips, and, and if the restaurant's only at you know a certain percentage of the full capacity, the income for the, for these um, workers has, has gone down quite a bit, right. even though they're putting in the same number of hours. So I think it probably you know it's always a balance, as you've said. Um, I think there there has to be a balance between safety and what we need to do to continue living our lives, and also to to allow people to to earn income. Right. And I think the world is going to change. And I think, you know, it's a time when uh, people may need to seek other types of employment. You know, sad but true. Um, I mean, you know, I loved eating out in restaurants um, and and it loved me. (laughs) But um, but I don't know if I'll if I'll do that again. Outdoors, I'm okay with it. Um, and and take out certainly. Um, let's talk about schools. Um, kids going back to schools. There's been a lot of discussion about reopening of schools in September. Um, parent parents are probably keen to get the kids back to school. The kids are probably keen. I've heard that some of the teachers and some of the administrators, some of the unions, are not so happy about the kids going back to school um, because they're quite worried. Uh, what is the latest research? And are are kids at risk for getting the infection and then passing it on to others. Yeah, so I mean, there has been a, a, a research um, that was published or released um, from Korea recently, and we, you and I have been talking a lot to our listeners about you know children not being totally um, protected from this, that children do pass the infection on, that they do get sick. Mind you, it's a lot less than people in the older populations um, in terms of both um, getting sick and then, and then passing the infection on. And what's really interesting is that a study just came out saying that children that are under the age of 10 actually... Maybe don't get as sick, but they're also less likely 
to pass on the infection. Now, this is something new. And as I keep telling people, much like your mask recommendations, we all have to keep changing our opinions and positions once we get new evidence. And so what, what, it, what this study is saying is that children up to the age of 10 do actually spread the COVID-19 virus a lot less. Now, I'm not saying zero. Mm-hmm. It's just a lot less. And whereas children that are over the age of 10 um, spread it as much as adults do. Now, there's a whole bunch of different theories on it. Part of it is, and this might seem a bit funny, but it's because they're short, right? So the kids being short, meaning mm-hmm. that they only spread vi- they don't spread viruses upwards and maybe adults don't get them or maybe they pass them on to other kids, but, but they're not as tall. So they're not likely to spread them to a wider space or to taller people. Um, so what that says to us then is that when we're planning and Marine September's coming up very fast, it's less than four weeks away now, is that when um, children go back to school, the recommendations across the country right now are likely that uh, children at the youngest age groups, so elementary school or under the age of 10, um, masks won't be mandatory, but, you know, wear them if they can't physically distance. Um, but the, the, um, but the, the children in the teenage years and older than 10 should wear masks if they can't keep the two-meter distance. Now, what a lot of recommendations are um, that are going to roll out across the country will be to try to keep the children as much as possible, the students as much as possible, in little groups. Um, and it's okay for um, sort of middle school or late elementary school when you have one teacher and, you know, 25 to 30 students. But it gets a little harder in high school when you have electives and different classes where students rotate. So some of the recommendations that are coming out are to have the students stay in their particular group and the groups not necessarily join bubbles with another group. Mm-hmm. And that way, if, if there is an infection, you can isolate that one group. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds. And Maureen, uh, even though you, you said that parents and kids want to go back, and I think they do, parents are also quite nervous about having their kids go mm-hmm. back. And a, a lot of parents are saying, you know, can we not keep the online option? Um, 70, there's a study that came out that said 75% of parents actually want masks to be mandated, that all children should have to wear them. Um, and, you know, that's not where we're going right now with our public health policies. But, um, you know, it's an understandable um, fear that parents have about um, their children being around other children or teachers or staff that aren't wearing masks. Right. Um, you know, does it put the mind of the principal who uh, is over 50, has type 2 diabetes, uh, history of breast cancer, you know, how safe or comfortable should she feel going back to school, being exposed to these kids? And it's understandable that um, she would be feeling quite I'm quite at risk, and then you're also you painted you painted quite a, a scary picture, Maureen. But even even less scary than that would be you know teachers and other staff, admin staff, and others in the school that have either health conditions themselves or they care for people mm-hmm. that are more vulnerable in their own homes. And do they feel safe going? And and I don't think anybody. I mean, yes, we talk about healthcare workers a lot that put you know their lives at jeopardy or at risk when they interact with the public or treat the public members of the public like patients. But you know, no one teachers, administrators, principals, vice principals, nobody nobody wants to go to work and risk their life if they don't have to. And so that, I think that fear is understandable. Yeah, and I think it's going to be a bit of a trial and error. I mean, I think perhaps they'll go back, um, but then we'll, we'll have to see. We're talking COVID-19 and we're talking that, uh, that it's not uh, the great equalizer. What, what do we mean by that? 
What we thought, Maureen, was that this was an infection, a virus, and everybody's just as likely to get it, and everybody's as likely to get sick with it and die from it as anyone else. So there was no one who was going to be better off than anyone else. And what we're actually finding is not true. And there's been a lot of reports in the U.S., um, especially in New York, but other parts of the U.S. as well, that African Americans and other um, immigrant groups, um, sorry, not African uh, African Americans, but other uh, other groups of people like immigrants and uh, and so forth have been dying at higher numbers um, than than people that um, were white Americans. Now the first studies come out with um, numbers and data from the from Toronto. Now this isn't percentages of people dying. These are the numbers of cases. So what um, Toronto has found out is that black people and other people of color um, made up about 83% of the COVID-19 cases in Toronto. So Maureen, that's 83% of all cases in Toronto of COVID-19 COVID were, were people of color, yet they only made up 21, um, 21% um, sorry, they made up, made up a smaller percentage of the population. So, for example, if you look at black people getting COVID, 21% of the cases in Toronto um, um, were black people, but black people only made up 9% of the city's population. Wow. I have, I have Brent on the line. Just one sec, Dr. Parhar. Yeah. Good evening, Brent. Do you have a question for the doctor? Hi there. Yeah. Hi. Is there a good way to manage your weight if you're on medication that's just fighting you? I've got a large heart, and I've been on blood pressure medications for almost 20 years, and I just cannot get the weight off. Dr. Parhar, what would you... And, and you know, being uh, having added weight during COVID is also um, a health risk and, and likely associated with some of the um, increased incidence of these cases. Um, you know, it's a. I, I think given that you have a heart, uh, condition. Um, it, it might be important to speak to your doctor or cardiologist, but Dr. Parhar, do you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, just, just some general comments. You're absolutely right, Maureen, is that um, obesity, being overweight uh, or being obese, puts you at higher risk for COVID-19 complications. Um, but but uh, our caller, uh, Ben said, uh, um, is asking a very good question, and that's uh, how do you lose weight? Weight is really um, multifactorial. There's psychological components to the weight that we carry around or how much we eat. And then there's um, exercise components, your genetics, your other health conditions. There's so many things that play into that. I think you're, uh, I think you're asking an excellent question. I think you need a diet that's tailored for you based on what you can do. And then calories in and calories out. How much can you burn off of those calories that you're taking in? Um, and that's important. And clearly, before you get involved in any sort of fitness program or diet program, you know, run it by your physician, nurse practitioner, dietitian, cardiologist, you know, the whole team. Right. And, you know, Brent, um, a, a great place to go for information about obesity, and I don't know how much you weigh, but uh, I learned a tremendous amount from Dr. Dmitry Baranoff, and he's at Saratoga, Saratoga Springs in New York. So if you just Google uh, his name, Dmitry Baranoff, um, his website should come up. Um, and you can talk to your doctor about that because there's lots of different ways. There are even procedures for those people who have an, a BMI over 30. Um, there are minimally invasive procedures that, um, that you can uh, be a, a candidate for. Um, and help to lose weight and get on that program. But you're absolutely right, Dr. Parhart, psychological as well. So we were saying, you were saying that most of the people in Toronto who have co uh, contracted COVID-19 uh, were people of color, yet they don't absolutely, make up a yeah. large percentage of the, por of the population. Yeah, or or they're getting it more than they than they represent to the population. And let me state it. I, I kind of confused in stating the numbers there, Maureen. Let me restate that. So, 21 of the reported cases in in Toronto um, were people that were black, but the black 
people in Toronto only made up 9% of the population. So what that's telling us is a lot more people of color are getting the infection than we would expect based on how many there are in the population. Now, the, 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 the complex thing is we don't know what's causing that necessarily. And often we think about things like, is, is their health um, somewhat um, not as good as other, other people that are not of color? Um, is their household situation different? Could their education, income level, nutrition, could, could there be some other factors that are at play? And that's really what we're going to have to dig down to is figure that out. And, and Maureen, we've talked about this before. We're really worried about a lot of our populations that don't have great health situations to begin with, particularly the Indigenous communities across uh, Canada. And so what we're worried about is, you know, will there be a higher infection rate and then complication rate? I guess my plea as a physician is that I really wish that we, everybody, all, all the municipalities and all the provinces were looking at this detailed data about who's getting sick. And I'm not sure everyone's collecting that data more. You know, if they are, they're not sharing it yet. Because I think that's what we then need to focus our energy on. Who's getting the most sick with the infection um, and who's, who's getting the infection and who's getting the most sick with it. And, and then sadly, who's dying from the infection. Absolutely. And um, I've also heard that type O people are, are at less risk. Um, I don't know if that's played out. I heard that earlier on, um, are at less risk for contracting, have some type of protectionary measure. We didn't unfortunately get to the vaccines. We wanted to talk about that this week because we're up against the clock, Dr. Parhar, but hopefully you'll join me next week. interesting subject. I'm because I'm seeing a trend in my clinical practice, even though there's COVID-19, people are still going online and they are online dating. They might be keeping their bubble a little bit smaller or they're not serial dating like they were before, but they're falling in love and they're falling for a particular kind of guy (laughs) until something fails. Uh, And it's associated with club drugs like MDMA ecstasy, cocaine. Uh, And so these drugs have a significant effect on your erectile function. But here's the problem. People don't realize that. And in these club drugs, you know, there's no clubs open. So these guys are, and and it's not just limited to guys. I'm certain that women do um, club drugs as well, but they don't have a penis. So it doesn't really affect them in that way. Um, But this um, this affects men in this particular area. And, and what I think, which is below the belt, um, but I, I don't think that men realize it. And I think in part when people use substances, they why do they use substances? They often use them to feel better. Some people can use them recreationally. Other people can't. They get hooked on them or they get addicted to them. Crystal meth, they use them daily. Um, and these drugs make you feel great and they make you want to do the dirty deed, but you can't do it because it swipes away your ability to do so. And the worst drugs for these are the ones that, um, increase the, your adrenaline. And so if you think of erectile physiology, as you've heard me say on the show before, it's all about blood flow. So anything that restricts blood flow is a bad thing. And what restricts blood flow? That which makes you feel great, adrenaline. It's a tremendous blood flow restrictor. So the, anything that would behave like that would be, um, that would function similarly to adrenaline and MDMA certainly functions similarly to adrenaline can be extremely bad for your erectile function. So as they say, as they say, you're only as good as your last erection. Um, So there are some 
that are really bad, some drugs that are really bad for erectile function. And, you know, the thing about these drugs like ecstasy, um, their MDMA and ecstasy are typical of that great of this great paradox um, with all the serotonin they are they are joy chemicals uh, which ecstasy releases they fire from your serotonergic system they make you feel good they make you feel amazing you are the most loving cuddling mess you are flushed in love and lust and you are all over somebody and these are the stories that I'm hearing um, and all stimulants will have a global effect on every area of the brain to enhance function. So that's why your libido increases. However, the great paradox is that that which is making you all lovey-dovey and lustful is exactly what can prevent you from being able to take it any further. And that's what I'm hearing from women who are on dating apps who have met a guy who has mentioned or does or talks about it or has other unusual behavior, uh, which is maybe they go amongst the missing for a long period of time. Um, and But they have mentioned using these particular substances. And it can be associated with not feeling great about yourself, your self-worth perhaps, or you can have a tendency toward depression. And because those drugs you know, initially, especially they can actually wreak havoc on your life, especially crystal meth. Um, but they actually initially make you feel so happy and joyful because they affect your serotonin levels, but they are a big vasoconstrictor. So what I'm putting together for or helping women to piece together is that this guy that you are in love with because he's so lovey dovey and he's so lustful and he's so cuddly and he's so sweet and he kisses you all over can't take it any further. And then they're just like, this guy can't get an erection. He's 47. You know, can young guys get erections? Uh, can, can young guys get, ere- yeah, they can. Can young guys get erectile dysfunction is the, is the question that um, I'm being asked almost weekly in my clinical practice. And so I don't actually think um, uh, that men realize are putting the association. I did have a man um, present to my office. He actually had spoken of a time where he had used MDMA and he was actually unable to have an erection. He did also mention that he was unable to urinate while uh, on MDMA as well um, because the MDMA releases the hormone vasopressin, which controls the kidneys retention of water. So, you know, it's these drugs like cocaine will likely also make you want to have sex and then also prevent you from doing it because they are potent stimulants. And so there are um, some serious, serious side effects to these club drugs. And cocaine is a really nasty drug on the brain because of the vasoconstriction and you get lack of oxygen to regions in the brain. And there, there is some evidence to support that some people have... Um, have actually died or had long-term um, brain uh, impact on the brain, negative impact on the brain, brain death, um, because it affects so many different regions. And so you can actually get, you know, the- theoretically brain damage, if you will. Um, so I would think very carefully about 
utilizing these substances and I, and I'd connect, try to connect the dots somehow and think, I don't feel that great about myself on a daily basis. I feel better, more joyful. I'm lovey dovey. And then I can't have sex. And so you might actually put those, that little threesome together and maybe get the help that you need for your anxiety or depression or whatever mental illness may be the root cause of, um, your use of substances. Um, anyway, so there's, you know, they, they're a big draw because most people are, you know, almost everybody who, you know, utilize, uses cocaine. Um, they typically have an increase in sex drive and drive is a big issue for a lot of people, pleasure, performance, obsession, and also, uh, risky sexual behavior. So, uh, keep in mind, um, I don't think there can be a lot to be gained from using these drugs, especially from an erectile function standpoint um, over the short term or the long term. Uh, so anyway, just wanted to cover that a little bit because it's just such a mystery for, uh, women coming into my clinical practice, but it's not until you put it all together. And, and this one, um, patient of mine, she actually was talking about how, you know, he was so lovey, so lustful, so cuddly, so sweet, so romantic, but he couldn't end up having sex with her. But he did mention MDMA, uh, once. So it's probably more than once. Um, anyway, I do want to answer an email as well. Um, and this is, so I don't have a lot of context here (laughs) on this question, but this is going to open up a whole can of worms and we may actually do a series on this (laughs) to try to answer it all. Um, why do women tend sexually toward submission? So I I just want to give you a little bit of a definition of BDSM, which is where this comes from. I believe now I have no idea how old this guy is who asked this question. I'm going to assume it's a guy. Um, it was a text message that I received. Um, Sexual preferences and behaviors, the definition of BDSM, I should say, are sexual preferences and behaviors that involve physical restraints or um, an unequal power relationship or pain. They include the practice of bondage or discipline, dominance and submission and sadomasochism. So, um, you know, I mean, to, to, to generalize, why do women tend sexually towards submission? Um, you know, that's not necessarily, I don't like to paint everybody with the same brush, but I will say that the most sexually satisfied women are comfortable in their bodies. They're able to communicate their sexual needs and desires and fantasies with their partner or to their partner. And they have a sense that their partner is receptive to their needs. Now there, and to be honest with you, an element of empowerment, self-worth, those are key to a woman's level of sexual satisfaction. So it makes sense that sexual response is not as good for women who don't feel this autonomy. But female submission is an activity or relationship where a woman consents to submit to the direction of a sexual partner or allows her body to be pleasured sexually um, for the sexual pleasure of her partner. So it's a little bit more around for the sexual pleasure of uh, the partner. Um, as I mentioned, it's often associated with BDSM, but I think it's also associated with how women are educated about sex and uh, sexuality um, when they are growing up. And especially younger women tend to view the man as the dominant partner, um, but it can also be another 
woman, or they can be, you know, multiple dominant partners simultaneously. Um, but the, the submissive woman may derive sexual pleasure or emotional gratification from relinquishing control. And that's what submission is all about. And that's to varying degrees. And also um, satisfying a, a trusted dominant partner. Um, so as I've mentioned on the program in the past, BDSM is becoming more and more mainstream. And even in uh, 1985, a study suggested that about 30% of BDSM activities were uh, involved females. A 1995 study indicated that 89% of heterosexual females who are active in BDSM expressed a preference for a submissive recipient role in sexual bondage, suggesting also a preference for a dominant male. So why would a woman want to be dominated. Why would a woman, as this gentleman asks, why is it that women tend toward submission? What's the point, especially if, um, you know, in this day of feminism and the Me Too movement, if women allow men to order them around, if you will, in the bedroom. Um, And there's a lot of people, uh, men in particular, believe that a woman's submission is just laziness or an unwillingness to be active in sex. And that was my worry with this question, was that this gentleman was maybe talking about low sexual desire in women. And so sometimes women can just lay there. If they're exhausted, if they don't feel like doing it, if there's a conflict in the relationship. So I'm, as I said, I don't have a lot of context um, with this particular person's, um, question. It was just a one, one liner question, but you know, there are some times when sex may be the only situation where a woman would be overly compliant today. Many women work in uh, high powered jobs, uh, high visibility jobs. They have tremendous pressure in their lives and in their work, and they have a lot of autonomy. Um, and so they can be intimidating and they can be constantly um, barking out commands for people. They're extremely stressful. And so they want to be submissive. They want somebody else to take the reins, if you will, in the bedroom. Uh, you know, many women who are single, who pay all their own bills, no one's looking after them, they may have a desire to be looked after in bed. They don't want to have to make any more decisions or have any additional responsibility. They're tired of taking care of everyone, downright tired. And that can lead to low sexual desire, but it can also mean they want to be submissive in the bedroom. Therefore, many women just surrender in the bedroom. And they have a sense that if they do as they're told, they'll get looked after and they'll be given what they want. Other women need a partner to um, prove that they can, a partner to prove that they can be dominated, that they can be, that they are worthy of their submission. And so uh, there's a number of reasons why women tend toward submission. But I still question, is this question about low sexual desire or is about is it about submission? Because the two can be um, slightly confused. Um, and, you know, a lot of women who take on a submissive role in the bedroom um, enjoy a good and capable partner who will be able to dominate 
in that fashion. Remember, sex is for you too, ladies, and whatever floats your boat. Um, I, I do think that um, the education women have received has led to, um, you know, less comfort with their bodies, less they they're less um, likely to, especially at younger ages, to express their needs. Um, women are slut shamed. Women are name called. Um, you know, men slut shame women and want to have sex with them. I never quite understood that one. But um, you know, where men's sexuality is applauded, uh, women's sexuality is shamed. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.